There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist and this podcast series is dedicated to the discipline of psychiatry, discussing issues that whilst emanating directly from the discipline have implications for society generally. The series engages thought leaders from within the discipline and beyond to assist in exploring these issues and providing insights into some of the thinking that contributes to the richness of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Depression is a debilitating condition and medication can take weeks to provide relief. Suicide is a risk and potential consequence. Psychiatry as a discipline has long sought for a drug that might provide rapid resolution of both depressive symptoms as well as suicidal thoughts. It appears that such a drug has emerged from an unlikely source, anesthetics, specifically the anesthetic agent ketamine. On today's podcast entitled Depression, A Role for Ketamine, I have the pleasure of interviewing Professor Bonga Chalisa and Dr. Alan Howard. Bonga is a psychiatrist and the academic head of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. He is also the immediate past president of the South African Society of Psychiatrists and the deputy editor of the South African Journal of Psychiatry, and those are just a few of his local involvements. Alan is an emergency physician who returned to South Africa in 2019 after a 12-year stint in Ireland as a consultant in emergency medicine. He is the National Medical Director of Ketamine Clinics of South Africa and President of the Society of Ketamine Practitioners of South Africa. Bonga and Alan, welcome and thank you for making the time to join me in discussing what I think is an important therapeutic development in the field of psychiatry, namely the repurposing of an established anesthetic agent as a novel psychiatric treatment. So, Bonga... I wanted to start with you just to provide some clinical context to the discussion that will follow, namely to talk about depression. And I know it may seem kind of obvious and, and trite, but in psychiatry, when, when we talk about depression, we've got a very clear clinical sense of, of, of what we're talking about, specifically in terms of how we diagnose it using the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM-5, as, as, as one such uh, uh, manual. And so in the clinical sense, how would you describe depression? Because, you know, people can experience depressive symptoms and emotional distress, and I think we need to distinguish what that is from a major depressive disorder or a depressive episode. So I'm going to hand over to you, Bonga, just to give us some basic background in that sense. Sure. Um, thank you very much, uh, Christopher. I, I agree with you that um, there's a lot of uh, talk about depression, um, but it's often not clear what uh, people are, are referring to, whether they're talking about major depressive disorder or they're talking about sort of um, you know, ailments that people have um, in South Africa that are, you know, that may lead them to become a little bit sad. So my, my understanding of it is that it's, it's, it's a bit more, the disorder is a little bit more um, serious than, you know, so, sort of the average um, sadness that one gets uh, mm. following perhaps, uh, you know, being um, left by a girlfriend or a right. boyfriend um, where you can go to, the local woolies and have a, a chocolate cake and stuff your face and then feel a bit better right. um, after that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a serious disorder. It's, it's a brain illness, I think. Um, and most people describe it as um, 
really uh, quite disabling, as you've said. Um, so the, the two sort of symptoms that psychiatrists speak about quite often uh, when they talk about depression is, is really one of feeling of sadness, um, feeling sad every day, almost every day, um, almost all the time. <clears throat> and um, and also the inability or the, the lack of ability to, to feel pleasure. Right. Um, so, for example, if you like to listen to Seven Delan and that's what you watched and you enjoyed, um, people would say then suddenly, you know, even if I watch it, I don't enjoy it as much as I used to. Right. So I think those are the sort of the, to- the two core symptoms that we, we often refer to as uh, in depression. Right. Um, but they are accompanied by a whole lot of other symptoms um, that uh, are almost also very much part and parcel of, of depression. Um, yes. That's why some psychiatrists would kind of talk about depression as as, as a multi-system disorder. So um, because it affects your you know your energy levels, your your drive, um, ability to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. It's often that's pro- probably the one symptom that. At, um, uh, you know, makes people come to see psychiatrists is that they have, you know, terrible insomnia. Um, so it affects all these sort of um, pathophysiological processes of your body. Um, um, but it also um, leads to lots of feelings. So feelings of sadness, I've mentioned feelings of worthlessness, <clears throat> feelings of hopelessness, right. thinking that perhaps, you know, there's no hope for the future. Um, and then, um, unfortunately, as you said, one of the most serious um, complications of depression is that uh, often people have feelings of um, of it's probably better for me to um, end my life, or right. it's better for me that I wasn't living, or uh, what we call suicidal thoughts and, and ideas. Right. So, so, so it's a, it's a disorder with all these different symptoms. Um, we usually say it, you know, in order for you to have it diagnosed as a disorder, you. you you probably have to have a certain period of time right. that you you really have um, have all, all these symptoms, and, and psychiatrists um, t- typically talk about two weeks um, as a minimum sort of time where you you really are unwell and you have all these multiple multiple symptoms. Well, I think that what is being described is a comprehensive set of diagnostic criteria that you need to fulfill. Not every single symptom, but certainly, as you said, the, the, the major two are the, are, are the changes to mood and, of course, the what we could call anhedonia, the loss of any ability to, to, to experience pleasure. I think one of the other aspects in terms of mood, although sadness would be dominant, irritability can also come into it. And I often find that with depressed patients, their frustration tolerance is much lower and things that would not necessarily ordinarily irritate them irritate them very easily. So, so I think it's 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 sadness, but I think that um, irritability is also something that one sees. And I think yeah. what's what's important is, as you've said, there's a minimum period of time consistently over two weeks. So we're trying to tease out the the natural. Uh, responses to disappointments or anything that might upset you that can last for a day or two or three, but it usually passes and you don't necessarily need to see a professional, but you might speak to a friend or a family member and over time that kind of softens. And so for me, it's always important to distinguish the sort of transient distress that you might encounter in response to an environmental situation versus this kind of persistent um Mood change that appears for no apparent reason. It just kind of emerges and this is just how you feel and this is just how it is, which I think is really very difficult for the sufferer. And just to kind of give it some 
perspective in terms of major depression, I mean, it's, it's predicted that by 2030 it's going to be the leading cause of disease burden. I mean, overtaking all the physical cardiac issues and any other such cancers, major depression is going to be one of the leading or the leading uh, cause of, of, of disease burden, which really gives you some indication of how significant it is to be talking about major depression. I don't know what your comments are there, but also noting that it affects probably about 300 million people worldwide. So once you start to put data into the actual diagnostic entity, you begin to understand, okay, this is a significant problem. Bonga? Yeah, Christopher, I agree. I just before I talk about the the numbers, I yes. just want to take you back to that irritability yes. um, comment that you've made, and I, and I agree with you. So, you know, one of the things that st- stood out for me as a young um, trainee in psychiatry um, was this uh, gogo that uh, came to me, and I treated them um, with a good old um, uh, fluoxetine. Right, good old SSRI. Yeah, and she um, actually described her depression as uh, her heart right. was black and uh, and irritable. You know, so she talked about this irritability as a huge thing, and she said, "Dogotela, this pill that you've given me um, has really changed my heart. My wow. heart, I'm now kinder to people. I'm now nicer to people. I'm, 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 I'm more loving. You know, I'm able to talk to my grandchildren um, so much better. Mm. So, so I agree with you that irritability is a huge part of of, of depression. Um, and the other one, um, Christopher, is, yeah. is anxiety, which I think right, um, of course, is almost always um, part and parcel as well of depression. And I think a lot of people come to us because that is very difficult to tolerate. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, this is why, in fact, they, they often have depressed, um, difficulty falling asleep, etc., because they are anxious. Um, yeah. Well, I think the one thing about depression is that it's actually, and, and I think you alluded to that earlier, it's a very physical condition. You know, that loss of energy, that inertia, that, that, that lack of drive, together with changes in appetite, together with sleep disturbance. It's a very physical condition. So when we talk about depression as a as an illness or a disorder of the brain, it's 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 kind of putting the condition rightfully where it belongs and, and, and for people to understand the somatic the physical aspects of it, which I, I think are not underestimated by the person who, who experiences it, but not necessarily well understood in terms of how one understands depression, that it's a very physical condition in many ways, even affecting bowel functioning, for example. So, you know, in terms of constipation yeah. and, and, and what have you. So I don't know what your thoughts are there in terms of the physical aspects of depression. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, and as I said, uh, I, I think most of us, um, see people and the, one of the main complaints is really about sleep um, right. d- d- disturbances that they really can't, you know, if they can't sleep that night, then they really struggle to, to do anything else. Um, there's, yeah, there's, it does, it's a multi-system disorder. So it, it does affect the gut. Um, you know, we also um, get lots of referrals from physicians that treat people with um uh, different things that may look like irritable bowel syndrome, you know, those kind of right. symptoms of sort of um, um, long-standing periods of um, constipation or um, other bowel problems. Um, so it does also affect the gut. It also affects um, sort of your physical health in in, the, in a sense because um, a lot of our people also have difficulty uh, 
you know, with weight gain issues, yes. um, and often, as you said later on, uh, cardiovascular stuff, um, you know, increased cholesterol and those kind of problems. So I think it is a multi-system um, issue, and it really does require, therefore, for us to also think a little bit of it um, in a holistic kind of yes. way when you're talking about management of it. Well, I think that what you say is very important. And, and I always come back to the fact that in psychiatry, we are biopsychosocial. That is our ethos. And I like the use of the word holistic because I think that sometimes, often patients come to their psychiatrist and it's the psychiatrist who actually puts everything together because we're looking at the patient as a whole and we're starting to integrate all the different issues that they might have, different organ system issues that they might have and having seen various other medical specialists. And we start to put it together into a, 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 a framework that then becomes much more accessible and understandable for the patient. So very often it's, it's actually the psychiatrist who's got that global view because that is how we look at our patients. We have to. We have to have that global perspective and so i'm 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 always very keen for people to understand that i think psychiatry is the most holistic of all the medical specialties actually not least of all because of the biopsychosocial ethos that we have but because we have to be very conscious of the physical aspects that can impact on 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 emotional health and vice versa at the end of the day so that actually brings me to to the impact and the consequences of depression because obviously in terms of dsm5 Conditions to be diagnosed have to cause distress and dysfunction. And so maybe you want to comment a little bit about the dysfunctionality that arises as a consequence of a depressive episode. Yeah, thanks, Christopher. So I think the, you know, it, it, it really is um, quite a disabling illness. Um, and we have, you know, perhaps maybe just to give you a couple of examples mm. of, of, of patients that I've seen that, yes. um, that, that, this comes to light. So, for example, I've seen a medical student who um, um, has been depressed for a couple of years um, and has been repeatedly kind of failing uh, or struggling to pass each year for the last couple of, for the last couple of years. And then, uh, when I saw her and I realized that she's got depression, we you know we managed it. And later on, of course, it's always later on, right? When yes. someone reflects on the back and say, "Yeah." Hey, and she kind of said to me, oh, yeah, actually, I'm not stupid, you know. <laughs> I'm not stupid. It's because I did very well the first couple of years, and right. then I got this depression. And now I've been really struggling to concentrate, to, to study, et cetera. And now I'm, I'm, I'm much, much better now that I'm on medication. So it, it really does affect uh, the, what, you know, functioning. So whatever it is that we are trying to do in life at that particular time, um, the my, my sense of it is that obviously there's also degrees of functioning um, um, that you can talk about. So um, if you're a high-flying medical student, you know, you could go from sort of getting 80s and 90s in your in your studies to getting 60s and 50s and struggling to pass. And right. that's a significant shift, you know, in the way that you're functioning. But also some people who, you know, who are at home um, – who are doing other other th- other tasks may struggle just to get through those daily tasks. So, yes. um, you know, people will say to me that they really struggle to to get up in the morning, make their bed, make breakfast. It's a huge amount of energy, and they feel often exhausted afterwards, and they need to lie down, and then they don't do the rest of their tasks. Right. Um, what they need to do. So, it is really does affect um, every aspect of our lives, and it and and, it, and when you talk about functioning or difficulties in functioning, it obviously depends on where you are at that time, and it really does drop 
you know, what you've been doing for the last uh, few years? Well, I think that what we're really talking about, uh, certainly within the academic context and most likely in the occupational context, are the cognitive side or, or the cognitive consequences where you have an impact on concentration, an impact on memory. And, of course, you combine that with a lack of energy, a lack of drive, and there's going to be a significant potential fall-off in terms of your ability to perform. And even activities of daily living, like just getting up, making your bed, getting dressed, brushing your teeth, these things which you know we just take for granted because that's just what we do. I think when somebody is significantly depressed, it's a battle to get out of bed in the morning. And I think without preempting talking about treatment, that is a critical first step of every day. And specifically, I think where you are depressed just to get that momentum moving, otherwise you just don't get going. I think one of the other areas, sorry, just to, I mean, I don't know if you wanted to comment further on that, Bongo. In terms so, of, so the only one other thing I wanted to say, Christopher, is that, yeah. um, you know, we, are keep, we keep using different examples to kind of show to people that it actually affects everyone, right? Yes. It affects, you know, academics, it affects medical students, it affects, you know, housewives, people all across the spectrum. So I think for me that's important also to mention at the stage that it's not a disease just of poor people or um, of rich people. It's It really is cuts, cuts across the whole spectrum of, of our population. Now, I think that's very important. Uh, the only differential would be that there is a, a tendency for there to be a gender bias that women seem to be more affected by depression, and that could be for a whole host of reasons. Uh, sociocultural, presenting for care, hormonal, there are a whole host of things, but that would be the one distinguishing uh, 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 differential male versus female. But I agree with you, it occurs across the board. The one area that I think is very important that gets impacted are relationships. And I think it's very important to have a, a, a brief discussion on, on how it impacts upon families, spouses, partners, siblings, because I think that as much as the individual is affected, there's a system around that individual that is impacted upon. I mean, when we talk about academic and occupational, obviously in other settings as well, but let's bring it right back to the more immediate uh, folk who are around the depressed person. What would you say there, Bonga? Yeah, Christopher, it, it definitely does. And, you know, uh, you know, taking on the gender lens that you're talking about. So if, if a mom um, is yes. depressed, you can imagine, um, you know, a lot of our families kind of, you know, they're so central to the functioning of our families. Right. So, uh, you know, the kids uh, are affected. The the husband or partner is also um, often uh, is the one that really struggles with how to um, manage with this person that has kind of changed and become more irritable, become um, perhaps requires a bit uh, more time to be alone and quiet and, and lying in bed. Um, so, 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 so partners really, really struggle. And if there's already established kind of roles in the family that, you know, that uh, some, someone kind of takes care of this part and someone takes care of that part, that becomes a huge struggle um, for us how to do that. Um, a lot of partners often also uh, feel very guilty. Yep. Um, they feel guilty that they are perhaps uh, the reason um, why the, the the wife or husband is depressed, and also um, that they are perhaps uh, not picking up enough um, in terms of around the house kind of tasks that they need to do, and and, and lastly they often feel guilty that um, they could be doing more to support right. the person with depression. Um, there's always that feeling that uh, they're really not doing enough um, to try and get uh, their partner through this um, depressive episode that they are suffering from. 
So I think what's important is that as much as we look at it, the individual, we need to look at the system around the individual. So mm-hmm. in terms of treatment, one has to also be very mindful of the impact that uh, a person suffering from depression has on others around them and how not that they are part of the problem, although they might be, but how they might be part of the solution. Because I think that having a supportive system is very important on a day-to-day basis throughout the day. Obviously, suicide is a concern. In relation to depression, and I mean, if one looks at the at the figures, you know, worldwide, some something like seven hundred thousand suicide, completed suicides occur annually, and certainly in 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 this country, there is a, a again, we get back to the gender distribution. Men are about three to four times more likely to complete suicide than women. So, I mean, suicide is 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 something that we are very sensitive to and very conscious of as psychiatrists, specifically within the context of depression. And we always ask that question about suicidal thoughts, suicidal plans, and intention. So, Bonga, any, any, any comments on, 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 on that aspect of the assessment? Yeah, thanks, Christopher. So, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think suicide is also becoming quite an issue um, in the media uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, in right. the last couple of years, uh, the pandemic has really put a spotlight on on, on this. And I think the, the people that study suicide um, a lot closer than uh, you and I, perhaps, um, have said that it's been quite interesting. So there's been a, a lot of um, headlines, screaming headlines, saying that, you know, uh, young people are more, a lot more suicidal, a lot, mm. lot more um, um, trying to take their lives, etc. Um, but it's been really interesting. Um, just briefly, just talk about the pandemic, and then I'll, I'll move yes. on to <laughs> more generic. Um, it's been interesting because... Um, you know, the people that are talking about this, studying this, are saying, actually, there hasn't been an increase in suicidal behavior if you take on kind of the whole 12 months, if you look right. at, you know, the whole of 2020 versus, you know, 2010 or whatever. But perhaps there's been times when things have been a lot more um, uh, busier in casualties um, than usual because uh, of the lockdown, uh, you know, how the government kind of uh, responded to the pandemic. So right. when the lockdowns were harshest, uh, everyone was staying home, uh, you know, the, the parents and, and siblings were there around um, that person who was right. perhaps depressed or suicidal. And so that, you know, this, so suicidal behavior um, was not necessarily increased during that time. Right. Um, and, and then when um, things became more open, um, um, somehow the suicidal behavior became um, a bit more increased. So, yeah, yeah, suicide is, 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 is the one thing that we obviously as psychiatrists really are concerned about um, in suicidal behavior. Um, so that ranges from, you know, someone taking an overdose or someone cutting their, you know, their wrists um, and, and presenting to hospital. Um, and and it's, it's obviously um, very difficult because sometimes it's um, a serious cry for help. It's saying, I, I need help. I'm, I'm really, really struggling. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's people that have got such severe depression that they feel that there is no way out of their suffering except to end their lives. Right. Um, and we've had quite a number of very public uh, figures uh, in the last few years in South Africa that have actually committed suicide, um, which uh, is very tragic, obviously, because, you know, these are, you know, people that are, have come from upper income or, um, you know, that have a little bit more money. So you'd expect that, you know, the psychiatrist would have picked up these things, but it's very, very tricky <laughs> to try and, and, and kind of, um, I think suicide is very difficult to suicidal behavior. Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely correct. And it's, 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 it's just interesting. What you were saying is that 
there have been surges based on circumstance. But when you look at the overall picture, it's, it's, it's not felt that it's necessarily increasing, but there's certainly been surges as things have opened up following a, a, a lockdown where, where people are more free to move around and also to engage in certain behaviors without everybody being around at that time. So obviously suicide is a, is, is an issue. And I, and I think, you know, Alan is sitting, listening very patiently to us as we're working our way towards, towards ketamine. And we're certainly going to get there because I want to touch on treatment. And obviously, again, moving into the biopsychosocial uh, ethos that is psychiatry, we're focusing now specifically on the more biological interventions, moving towards an antidepressant. And so we, we, we have our typical, when I say typical, we have our antidepressant uh, smoggers board, so to speak. We've got a lot of different products with different mechanisms of, of, of action that we use for treating depression. I don't want to forget the psychosocial because I think that the psychotherapeutic components of managing depression are, are, are very important. But obviously today's discussion is, is, is going to maybe tend towards the, the biological. So, I mean, in terms of our current armamentarium, we've got the antidepressants, we have electro, electroconvulsive therapy, and of course there are other therapies emerging like uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. So Bonga, any of your sort of comments on, 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 on antidepressants? Let's start off with antidepressants because I think that I've seen arguments, or should I say debates in the British Journal of Psychiatry, they're overprescribed, they're underprescribed, they're not prescribed enough, they're prescribed too much. You know, for me, somebody has to earn their antidepressant. I want to make sure that that's what I'm dealing with, teasing out anything that is related to environmental or context-specific factors that could be impacting on, on emotional state. But that's a, a slightly different discussion in terms of whether they are or aren't overprescribed. Certainly, they are indicated, and so just your thoughts on on on, on indications and and what one should expect from an antidepressant. Yeah, thank you, Christopher. So th- th- there's no doubt in my mind that if someone has, you know, major depressive disorder, um, um, certainly serious enough to warrant to see a psychiatrist, um, they they probably warrant an antidepressant um, as part of their treatment, as, as you've said, um, as part of the sort of biopsychosocial management of, of, of care. Um, so we are fortunate um, that we have a number of different uh, choices of antidepressants to, to prescribe. Right. I think most psychiatrists would uh, rightfully say that um, the first line of uh, Antidepressants are usually the ones that are called SSRIs. Um, You know, fluoxetine is is, is the sort of the trade, the one that kind of uh, the flag mark, uh, uh, if you may, uh, of SSRIs, the the Prozac, um, as it was um, described in the 80s and 90s in the United States. Well, fluoxetine fluoxetine was a key drug because it was the first of the so-called serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitors, the SSRIs. So in a way, it was quite innovative. And I think innovation is an important word. I'll, I'll be coming back to that later. But yes, that would be kind of like one of your baseline drugs in terms of its efficacy. But of course, it's not without side effects, which I think are very important also to, to understand that when we treat, we treat for the therapeutic effect, but we also have to put into the mix the uh, a side effect profile, as well as expectations of how long it takes for the antidepressant to work. So maybe some of your comments on, on, on those points. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Christopher. So the yeah, most of us would say that um, 
antidepressants work and they work uh, robustly. Um, however, they do take a little bit of time to work. Um, so you'd expect some response, in other words, some symptoms to get better uh, within about a week, um, up to 10 days or so, uh, for us to, to know that um, that medication is working. So it does take time. Unfortunately, it's not a pill that you take today and immediately you feel better today. Um, it right. takes, uh, you know, up to two weeks really for us to see, uh, you know, some kind of response. So that's the one, um, uh, difficulty with, if I, if I may say with, um, our medications that they do take a little bit of time to work. And this is not just the SSRIs. So, uh, the serotonin ones, but, um, most of our antidepressants that we give, uh, unfortunately do take, uh, time to, to, to work. Um, the, in terms of the side effects, um, we are treating a, a serious illness, uh, and so we have to probably use medications that uh, are also quite serious, and, and they do unfortunately then uh, cause um, side effects. And 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 the the ones that are predominantly quite commonly um, uh, that that occur quite commonly initially are things like headaches, uh, nausea, right. you know, stomach um, stomach sort of difficulties, uh, perhaps even diarrhea. Yeah. Um, um, and then um, as you take the medication a little bit longer, some people would also complain of other side effects like um, sexual dysfunction. So right. inability to to uh, want to have sex or right. uh, inability to sustain uh, an erection if you're a man or um, uh, inability to kind of sustain the arousal if you're a woman. Right. Um, and lack of orgasm as well. And lack of exactly, exactly. So, so there are a number of side effects, but I think those are the ones that are quite common um, that we speak about. And I think it's important that patients understand that upfront because one needs to anticipate that sometimes before the therapeutic effect, you get the side effect. So I would often say to patients, if you're experiencing a side effect, it means the drug is working, not necessarily as you would want it to. The therapeutic effect will follow. And then the question is really going to be to what extent the therapeutic effect ultimately kicks in and the side effects one habituates to which become less problematic. But obviously if they are distressing, then one would have to relook at what one is treating the patient with. So it's, it's going to be very much an, an individual choice ultimately because some antidepressants work better for some patients than, than others and, and, and vice versa. The one thing though that we don't see a rapid reversal of is suicidal ideation. It does diminish with treatment but again, uh, the antidepressant, as you alluded to, you start it, it doesn't mean you get an immediate effect. You've got to take it for a period of time. And I, I think in terms of suicidal ideation, that may exactly be the case too. Your your thoughts there, Bonga? Uh, yes, uh, that's correct, uh, Christopher. Un unfortunately, that's the one um, symptom, if you may, or part of the, 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 the symptoms of depression that do take a little bit of time. So, in fact, I think uh, most of us would say that um, – when someone is is, is quite suicidal yes. and and it's posing a risk <clears throat> to themselves, uh, we often feel a little bit better to perhaps admit them yes. and keep them in hospital for a week or two whilst right. we are getting the medication on board and we're trying to make sure that the depression goes away um, because it it definitely does um, take a little bit of time for us to to get those thoughts um, out the way and, and, and make sure that that person is safe, um, is able to, to, to go outside and not um, attempt, to, attempt to kill themselves. So I think that this forms part of our risk assessment. And I think just going back to the biopsychosocial approach and, and, and in terms of the individual plus the family, I think that's where the support system also comes into play. So I think that's very important. So essentially, you know, one of our treatment modalities – 
We've got antidepressants. There are other various options like electroconvulsive therapy and various other uh, uh, therapies along those lines. But I think the issue for us is around efficacy. Does it work? The speed of onset, how quickly does it happen, and the side effect profile. And this now kind of brings me to, to ketamine because if one reads about ketamine and one understands a little bit about ketamine, one sees that here we have an agent which seems to have some of the answers for some of the difficulties. And I'm not presenting it as a miracle drug or a miracle cure by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's an important um, agent that has emerged, and so that's why we wanted to have this discussion. So I'm going to I'm going to move to Alan now, who's been sitting patiently, listening to the build-up. And of course, Alan, these are some of the patients who would potentially find their way to you for ketamine. But maybe you just want to give us a little bit of your story, how you got to get involved, and uh, where it began, and a little bit of background to 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 ketamine itself, the history of the agent, etc. So I'm going to hand over to you, Alan, just to, to hold the floor and, and uh, tell us about ketamine. Thanks, Christopher. Um, it really started for me uh, as a consultant in emergency medicine in Ireland um, for about 12 years, as you mentioned, up until the end of 2019. And there was a sudden rash of, of suicides and attempted suicides amongst uh, young people, early 20s, teenagers, and this was actually affecting me quite badly as, a, as, a, as an emergency physician. We were resuscitating these patients, often unsuccessfully, and I wondered what on earth was, was happening here. And I had a patient that uh, presented to me who had tried to take her own life in a, in a rather dramatic fashion. Uh, she tried to slit her throat, or she did slit her throat in front of paramedics, and they got her there just in time, and she hadn't done any significant structural damage. It was a very deep gash on her throat, and I repaired it in the emergency department using ketamine as the procedural sedative, a couple of boluses of ketamine. I saw this patient a week later, and this was an entirely different woman. Now, she was, was known to have depression. She was on a cocktail of antidepressants and mood stabilizers and had been for years, and nothing was working for her. And it dawned on me that it was actually the exposure that she'd had to, to ketamine that had caused a dramatic change in her, and that caused me to start investigating it a little more closely. Um, I looked at a book that one of my registrars gave me called The Ketamine Papers and realized that there was honestly something to this. Um, I did a bit of research and discovered that there were several clinics in North America, one in particular in Los Angeles run by Stephen Mandel, who's an anesthetist. I had a look at his protocols and thought, well, let me bring this back to South Africa and discuss it with some psychiatrists in, uh, in KZN and Peter Maritzburg. I used to return on a fairly regular basis from Ireland. And so we started uh, using ketamine for treatment-resistant depression, and the results were remarkable. And that is where uh, Ketamine Clinics was born. And we've now expanded to, to have four branches around the country, four clinics, which are manned by doctors, anesthetists, and ICU nurses, and it's 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 proving remarkable, and it is it is it is very gratifying to see suicidality in particular change in a in a fairly high proportion of patients. Uh, getting back to what Bongo was saying about um, you know suicidality, and he mentioned anxiety earlier on. Often anxiety will lead to depression. Patients will become suicidal, feel there's no alternative, and they will be started on traditional antidepressants, which, as Bongo said, take 
um, several weeks in, in some instances to kick in. So I view ketamine really as a, as a suicide safety net because of the rapidity of action in about 70% of cases of patients who are suicidal. So you asked me to go back a little bit on yes. the origins of ketamine and what it, what it, how it came to be. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Ketamine started off way back in 1956, believe it or not, as um, fencyclidine or cernal, which was known on the streets as PCP or angel dust. Right. So it was a slightly different uh, analog to ketamine as we know it today. But in 1962, Colin Stevens adjusted the compound slightly and ketamine was, was born. And it was originally registered by the FDA as a dissociative anesthetic. So patients um, experience an out-of-body type of, of sensation. Um, it has a potent analgesic action as well. And nobody recognized that it was changing patients' mood. Um, so it wasn't until the early 2000s, in fact, remarkably around about the time that the STAR-D trial came out, which was the, the largest sort of seminal trial on uh, looking at the effects of, of SSRIs. Mm. It wasn't until then that the effect of the glutamatergic agents, which work on other neurotransmitters compared with the traditional antidepressants, had on, on mood. And it was in 2006 that Carlos Zarate's seminal paper on ketamine for depression came out, and it's really gained a lot of momentum, and it's kind of been um, fast-tracked since then. And it's not actually that strange now to sort of hear about people having ketamine to sort their depression out. Mm. Um, although it's classified as a psychedelic, um, it, is a, it is a registered drug, unlike the other psychedelics. And um, that's a little bit of background to, to how ketamine came about. I think one of the issues is this transition from uh, a, a, a drug that had potential recreational use because yeah. of its dissociative effects into something yeah. that is actually, well, not just in terms of anesthesia, but in terms of potentially being a therapeutic agent for mm -hmm. psychiatric patients. So I think that there may be some of that hangover in terms of association with ketamine as a party drug or as yeah. a recreational drug. How would you, how would you respond to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ketamine is, is available on the street. It, it, it is an addictive drug um, in the same way that something like cannabis would be right. more psychologically addictive than physically addictive. Uh, it's been declared by the DEA as a class three substance from an addictive potential, which means that it's not in the same group as the opiates or the benzodiazepines even. Right. Um, and we certainly at our clinics that have been open for over two years now, we haven't seen any issues with, with addiction or dependency with ketamine. Um, obviously there have been studies done on ketamine addiction where people are taking, in some instances, up to grams of ketamine orally a day. There was a study out of China that had a look at that, and that is where we're seeing some side effects developing. We can talk about the side effects a little later. But it certainly isn't something that I would flag as a, a that addiction would be a major problem with it. Yes. But it is available quite freely in, in raves and, and nightclubs and, and, and that sort of thing often adulterated with other substances, which, which obviously further uh, stigmatizes exactly. it as a result of the consequences of taking it. So yeah. I think what's important for me is that we need to make a clear distinction between ketamine that would be prescribed and yeah. delivered in a controlled way, in a controlled environment for a specific indication versus what people are doing let me say off-label, recreationally uh, in, yeah. in, in other settings. And I think that one mustn't conflate the two because I think any 
therapeutic agent, if it's misused or used incorrectly, is potentially going to have problematic consequences. And yeah. there are many agents which psychiatrists prescribe which are open to abuse and, and misuse. I'm, I'm not going to label them, or should I say mention them, but I think that certainly we know that uh, one has to be very careful in terms of prescribing and uh, how individuals use or misuse drugs of, of, of prescription. And I think ketamine would, would, would be no different in, in, in that sense. I just think it has a more established, unfortunate reputation in that sense. And I think it's important just to clearly make the distinguishing uh, uh, or, or distinguish between how it's used therapeutically to how it's used in, 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 in other settings and not to conflate the two and potentially undermine an agent which has some utility. So yeah, that, is, that is absolutely critical. Um, you know, what we want to avoid is people who are listening to this thinking that I'm depressed, let me head off to a rave and see if I can get some ketamine on the black market. It ain't going to work like that. No. You know, you're looking for very specific dosing, uh, which is weight-based. You're looking at specific protocols that we use. The therapeutic milieu and the environment that the ketamine is given in is, is critical to the success of the drug. Right. So that's a very valid point that you make there. Yeah. So I wanted to bring Bonga back in now because obviously, you know, I, I understand that, that, that you and Alan have had some collaboration in terms of, 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 of ketamine. But just your thoughts, Bonga, in terms of indications for ketamine, where does it fit in? And, and just to say, we often start out with, with, with an agent which has a very specific niche in terms of how we utilize it. And then as time passes, it kind of changes. So as we would be sitting here today, Bonga, what would your thoughts be in terms of indications for, for ketamine? Yeah, sure, sure, Christopher. Thanks for that. I, I just wanted to say one thing first is that I, I do agree with Alan that when that paper came out um, on um, it was a you know a very well done paper on the effects of ketamine on people that had treatment resistant depression and how suddenly um, or how quickly they improved their depressive symptoms. It was really, really, it really changed the way that we think about um, treatments of, of people with. Uh, what we call uh, treatment-resistant depression, so people that are we really struggle to sort of get back to to their normal functioning. Um, Sorry, just to jump in there, Bongo. Just to be clear, treatment-resistant depression is 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 something that one arrives at after having been on numerous different antidepressants for a recognized, you know, reasonable period of time, and antidepressants from different classes are not the same type of antidepressant. So to get to the point of being Diagnosed with treatment resistant depression, you've walked quite a path to get there. Would you, would you agree with that? That's th absolutely, that's correct. So, uh, you know, and there's a number of different parts, but you know, the, the, you know, so for example, one could say that a person can be depressed at, you know, this month today and as, you know, an antidepressant and then tries a different antidepressant and is still depressed. And that for that person, three months or four months down the line would be labeled uh, as treatment resistant depression. But there's also other parts where um, people would be depressed this year and, you know, and be on different antidepressants. And then again, next year will be on different antidepressants, um, you know, and psychotherapy and, you know, other things by different psychiatrists. And then eventually kind of really just, do not um, get back to their functioning. So there's also that other class of, of people. But yeah, so I agree that treatment-resistant depression is, is, is depression that has really uh, failed to respond to a number of different um, antidepressants. 
So when the ketamine trials from the United States came out, it was really, uh, it, it really did shock uh, us who are in researchers um, because it was a robust response um, to, 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 the, to the agent uh, and those people became so much, so much better. I think so much so that other psychiatrists kind of wanted to see a second study done right. <laughs> to replicate this, these effects. And in fact, then the studies have been done. And I think after the second study, then psychiatrists really thought, wow, this is something for us to consider. Um, so, so I think that's the one uh, area the psychiatrists would probably agree that um, is, is when ketamine is indicated. So right. in people that they've really tried different things, you know, they really struggled to get them better. And so that is the one, one area. The second part, which I think came out a little bit later, um, is the one about suicide. Um, so in people that have got depression, who are um, actively, um, well, who are suicidal and really would like to end their lives and yes. these repetitive thoughts about how to end their lives, et cetera. Um, as I said earlier on, those, um, it's, a, it's an emergency, really. It's a right. psychiatric emergency. And, and so those people, um, psychiatrists really struggle um, to manage and contain. And we have to kind of put them in our wards and we have to make sure that the ward is safe and, you know, they can't also try and commit suicide in the ward. Correct. And so I think um, there's also been now quite very good um, studies that have shown that ketamine actually is quite useful for those uh, for those patients, and um, it does uh, uh, improve those suicidal um, behaviours uh, quite dramatically as well. So, so I think those would appear to be the dominant indications as things stand in terms of of, of when might consider when one might consider ketamine as as an option. So putting that in the mix, Alan. The, the actual process, what are the practical aspects? Because obviously um, there are specialized settings for the administration. So maybe you just want to walk us through the process of, 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 of uh, receiving ketamine, because I think that's very important. Uh, sure, Christopher. So let me stress at the outset that the doctors that work at the ketamine clinics are not psychiatrists. Right. So we're not in the in the game of, of diagnosing patients with with psychiatric disorders and mental illness. Right. Um, we are, if you will, uh, technicians with a background in emergency medicine, anesthesia, life support, so on and so forth. You know that entitles us to or enables us to actually safely administer what is an anesthetic drug. So that's the first point. We rely on referrals, often from from patients, GPs who you know are the kind of gatekeepers of of mental health in many cases. But most of our referrals will come from psychiatrists. So we establish a baseline um, when, when we first get, uh, get a patient, and, and that includes uh, what we call a PHQ-9 form, Patient Healthcare Questionnaire 9, which looks at nine parameters that are used to diagnose major depression. Right. And we do that concurrently with a GAD-7 form, so we're looking at the anxiety aspects of it as well. Right. And that establishes a baseline for the patients. And Sorry, particularly just to, the just question... To, just to jump yeah. in, GAD is generalized yeah. anxiety? Disorder, yeah. Disorder, yeah, right. That's okay. right. Yes. And on the, on the PHQ-9 form, which is for the depression, the suicidality question is, is the one that we pay a lot of attention to. Right. And, you know, just, just circling back a little bit to, to what is treatment-resistant depression, if you look at the definition as far as the STAR-D trial is concerned, um, you know, if you think about one in seven people in the world experiencing depression at some point in their life. Um, a third of patients treated with um, a single monoaminergic agent or an SSRI will respond, only one third. Yeah. 
uh, two-thirds will respond to up to four agents and mood stabilizers, and the balance would be considered treatment resistant. So that would form the pool of, of patients that we see most often. Right. Um, so the patient would be introduced to the clinic by a, a referral source like a psychiatrist. They would fill the forms, and that can be done online on the website. And they would have a if what is effectively a pre-anesthetic consultation with the doctor at one of our clinics uh, to ascertain that if they are medically fit and it's perfectly safe to give them the ketamine infusion. Right. Um, all of the patients are monitored, you know, a multi-parameter monitor. So we have a look at their oxygen saturations, their cardiac tracing, blood pressure, pulse, respiration throughout the infusion. Right. They are in a comfortable reclining chair um, in a slightly darkened room with um, eye, an eye shield on, and they listen to, to gentle music. The doses we use um, are significantly lower than the doses that I would use, for example, in an emergency department if I was going to be performing a, a painful procedure. Okay, so that's or, important. Yeah. That's important. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's effectively about a quarter of, of an intubating dose, right. which would be in the region of about two milligrams per kilogram as a bolus push. Right. So we start patients on 0.5 per kg over 40 minutes, which is a very gentle ramping up of, of the serum levels of ketamine, which takes them through a couple of fairly predictable clinical stages. Right. Uh, I'll just very quickly mention them. Yes. The first stage would be the empathogenic phase, where patients sort of feel a sense of wellness, um, and all is kind of well with the world and a warmth, that sort of feeling. Uh, the second phase would be the out-of-body experience, which is quite curious for most patients. Some patients find it quite stressful. Right. But that could be something as simple as feeling that your limbs are detached or that you're literally completely out of your body and looking down at what's going on. So that's uh, the dissociative component. Dissociative component. And that's mixed up with something that we call synesthesia, which is a mixing of the senses which is why it's very important to be in a very quiet environment um, with, with, with gentle music that they can fix on because changes in the music and the timbre and the tone of the music will actually create color perception and changes in um, sort of patterns and geometry. There's usually a movement component that a patient experiences during an infusion, flying or sinking or floating or something of that nature. That sounds and almost then, like the psychedelics. It is a psychedelic drug, yes. uh, abs absolutely, but the important thing to stress is it is a registered psychedelic <laughs> right. drug. Okay, uh, you know, it's used off-label, absolutely, but it's, yeah. it's not as if you're giving someone psilocybin or, exactly. or, or mescaline or MDMA or any of those things. Right. The third phase would be the what we call a near-death experience, which sounds a bit scary, but in fact, most people say, wow, that was a very peaceful experience. There can often be a sense of of, of talking to to deceased loved ones, or if people are spiritual, there'll often be a spiritual component to it, archetypal imagery, angels, Jesus, that sort of thing. Yes. And the final phase, which is referred to, I suppose, in the party scene or in the uh, illicit ketamine scene as being in a K-hole, you've probably heard that expression before. Uh, I've heard about to, the A-hole, but not the K-hole. Yeah, it's not an A-hole, it's a K-hole, and it's, it's, it's egolysis, okay, or a loss of sense of self. Right. where someone once described it to me as feeling like a, a speck of dust floating around the, the cosmic universe, mm -hmm. uh, a very sort of peaceful experience, quite interesting. Um, so those are the stages that they go through. After 40 minutes, the infusion is ended. The patients are 
are left in a, in, a, in a quiet space monitored for a further 10 or 15 minutes until the eye shield is removed, yeah. and then they are allowed to go home. So I'd just like to make a, a quick point based yes. on something Bonga mentioned about the suicidal patients that are then admitted for two to three weeks in some instances until the traditional antidepressants start working. Because the ketamine infusions have such a, a high success rate in, in reversing suicidal ideation, even after a single infusion, often that hospitalization can be avoided um, through using the ketamine route and using it as what I call the ketamine safety net right. in these suicidal patients. I'm not for a minute suggesting that they shouldn't be on traditional antidepressants, that they shouldn't have traditional community and, um, treatments and, and psychotherapy and so on. But it is a very useful initial step in patients that have been diagnosed as potentially suicidal, and they need not necessarily have treatment-resistant depression. I think that's one niche that has to be looked at very carefully as a potential use yes. for ketamine beyond just those that are resistant to uh, traditional therapies. So I think that what is important is to understand that that impact has a duration, that it will last for a period of time. So it's not just while you're having the infusion, that's what you experience and that's in the moment. It lasts for somewhat longer. What is the, what is the expected duration for that, that sense, Alan, after, after the infusion? So that is a really, really important point. There's two elements to the, the ketamine infusion. There's the psychedelic experience that the patient has that is a minor element of them getting better or improving um, you know, from their depression or their other mental illness. Then there is the scientific reason as to why we are giving the ketamine. The ketamine is a glutamatergic agent. Yes. It causes a surge of something called glutamate, particularly in the limbic system. And the effect of that is to cause release of something called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, that actually causes synaptogenesis, dendritic sprouting, in areas of the brain, usually in the amygdala, the hippocampus, uh, areas of the limbic system that have been affected by chronic mood disorders right. and have actually atrophied in many cases. So there is actually a scientific basis for the ketamine that goes beyond just the experience or the ketamine yes. trip. So I think what we're seeing is that there's a cascade of effects that get triggered through the ketamine. And I think the issue of brain-derived neurotrophic factor is very interesting because it's, it, it seemed when I first read about it many years ago, this was indications that the brain can regenerate. And I yes. think that's, that's very important. You know, there are so many questions that I still had to ask. I know that you guys have done a, a retrospective study uh, on, on, on ketamine, and I don't want to preempt that, just to say that there is local data that will emerge to back up a lot of what has been discussed today. One of the other issues that I didn't really touch on, but I, I want to just put out there, is that I think through an agent like ketamine, we start to open up a deeper understanding or a different understanding about the pathophysiology of depression, and we start to move potentially towards even more novel uh, 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 therapeutic yeah. agents, because I think ketamine has certainly opened the door in, 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 in that sense. I'm, I'm sure neither of you would uh, disagree with me, and I just want to throw in there uh, potassium ion channels, that's a very technical term, but I think that this is where they're starting to move now in terms of what the uh, a therapeutic effect might be of, of, of ketamine. So there's a definite physiology that's kind of unfolding in front of us, which is giving us new insights into the pathophysiology of depression. So Bonga and Alan, I want to thank you for, for, for joining us. I don't know, Bonga, did you have a last comment that you want to make? <laughs> Actually, before I, I, yes. I do, Christopher. Yes. Sorry. It, it's 
Very quickly. Um, yes. So the infusions are not just a once-off eh? right. um, for depression. That's what I wanted to say to Ellen. So, you, you know, Ellen, maybe you can say that they come back, they have to do it a few times before um, there's a yes. sustained yes. antidepressant effect. Yes, thank you for... Important. In fact, I didn't, answer, I didn't answer Christopher's question as to what is the duration that you would expect. So the right. studies have shown that um, after a single infusion where you have somebody who responds... Uh, you, you're looking for that effect to last about a week. Right. Um, you know, so certainly in a suicide crisis, we talk about them in our clinics as rescue infusions. The patient may not complete the series if it's purely a case of reversing that emergent suicidality that's happened. But as Bonga said, we, we need to extend the infusions over a six-week period right. and then possibly maintenance infusions beyond that in order to sustain the antidepressant effect. Excellent. So once again, and I think it's very important just to clarify expectations because I think expectations are critical in terms of how we experience outcome. Um, I really appreciate both of you joining and your willingness to, to, to share of your time and knowledge. And just to specify, the aim of today's podcast was not to promote an agent or a service, but simply to inform. And as with any therapeutic intervention, I, I think a key element is informed consent. So information is important. One needs to be able to, to trust. So I'm going to close with a quote from uh, a book written by Matt Ridley, How Innovation Works, and he quoted the Nobel Prize-winning economist Edmund Phelps, who defined an innovation as a new method or new product that becomes a new practice somewhere in the world. And I think if one looks at the unfolding story of ketamine, I think that is what we are dealing with. We're dealing with innovation. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.